0: Uh, we're going to do what we do each Sunday. Now, we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, some way to access the Scriptures. There's even a Bible under the seat in front of you. If you could turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, if you're able, if you could stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 1. Matthew writes this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us that they brought spices with them in order to complete the burial process, which uh, had not been completed because they were trying to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that the men shook and became like dead men. They fainted. Angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb after uh, they they were afraid, he says, yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. The literal translation of this is closer to just like "Hi." They came to him and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, "Don't be afraid. Go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." That's God's word. You may be seated. May pray for us once more, and then we'll dive into this um, spirit of God. Would you come now and illumine the preaching of your word? Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive this word. And God, would you accomplish? Whatever purpose it is you have in each one of us individually, through this word today, you promise that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Accomplish that purpose, God, in each one of us today, whatever it is. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, they are the words that struck both joy as well as fear into the hearts of everyone who heard them. And once they'd seen the evidence for the claim being made, their lives were never the same afterwards. I'm referring, of course, to everyone who has ever heard the words, I'm pregnant, <laughs> or maybe you're pregnant before, or I don't know, seeing you saw the little plus on the test or the line or the two lines, you've got to read the package carefully because you want to get this right. But that, that, that knowledge that however you discovered it, that there is now a life coming into the world because of you that didn't exist before. Uh, th- these are words that I've heard twice now in my life before and evoked, yeah, similar experiences of both uh, fear and, and joy uh, all at the same time. Look at that young guy. Who is that? And while I'm fully aware that either by choice or by circumstances, those are not words that Everyone has heard before, I know that, and you know what I think it's important to pause here because I don't think we say this enough. I want to just say that that's actually entirely okay if you haven't. Um, it really is that while uh, having kids, just like being married is is a wonderful, fulfilling life experience. It's by no means the only one or the pinnacle of it um, but but whether you've heard those words before or not, I think what everyone could at least understand is why someone would be feeling those ways in the midst of hearing news like that, right? Why they would feel both fear and joy. I think we get that. As well as the way we'd likely sense that something was off, something was wrong maybe, if someone didn't feel either of those things at hearing such news. Like if somebody heard this news, they didn't feel joy or excitement of any kind, at hearing the news that they were going to be a parent, we'd likely assume that either there was something about the circumstances of their pregnancy that was broken or that maybe that there was something broken in them. They just felt no joy or excitement at all. Similarly, if someone felt no fear or apprehension at the news that they were going to become a parent, uh, just like you know, what's the big deal? It's going to be easy. We'd, we'd, we'd assume at least that they have a naive understanding of everything involved in what it means to be a parent. No, right? I think most of us would agree. Joy and fear are entirely healthy, appropriate emotions and responses to the words, I'm pregnant. And yet, and I don't know if this description in verse 8 stood out to you as well if you look at it, when it came to hearing the words from our passage today, he is not here. He is risen. And then seeing the evidence of that claim... I think most of us are kind of surprised, maybe even confused a little, when uh, we read that those who first heard these words would respond with anything but joy. Like, what on earth does Matthew mean when he says the women hurried away after hearing these words, afraid, yet filled with joy? We're like, what do you mean, afraid? Afraid. Like they they just heard the most incredible, life-altering news that's ever been said to anybody in the history of the world. What on earth could there possibly be to fear in that moment? Well, that's what I want to spend a few minutes exploring together with you from this passage as we come to what is, yeah, one of the very last messages in our time through this series in Matthew's gospel, we've entitled Kingdom Come. We're going to look at why joy and fear were actually both equally appropriate in this historic moment, just as they are at the news of a pregnancy. But beyond just looking at the response of these first mourners turned messengers alone, I want to look at how we respond to the news of Jesus' resurrection today as well in some of the exact same ways, and how joy and fear are also things that we ought to experience in the midst of hearing this news, and that the absence of those things, the the absence of those responses may indicate that something's broken in us as well. So we're going to look at just two things together. I want to talk about the importance of joy and then also the importance of fear. Just those two things today, the importance of joy and the importance of fear. So if you've closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, could you open them again to this passage, Matthew 28? We've, We've made it to the last chapter, guys. Three years later, we finally got here. Uh, Matthew 28, beginning of verse 1 there. Follow along with me as we dig into this together. Let's look, first of all, at the importance of joy. The importance of joy. And I want to look at the joyful response to Jesus' resurrection first because of the two responses we're looking at, I think this one is the most expected. It's, it's the one that's the most easily understood response to the news that the angel brings to these women, and so maybe it'll just be easiest for us if we start with the kind of most expected, most easily understood response before we move to the less expected, less easily understood response. I guess we'll see. And if you consider the, the, the impact of the angel's news and his words, given both their immediate as well as their historical significance, this truly is, like this is joyful news beyond imagination when you consider, like first of all, this, the fact that someone who had just died three days ago and that they'd actually seen die was now not just said to be alive, he's standing right there in front of them. I mean, I think it's safe to assume that this is not at all how either Mary imagined this day was going when they headed out that morning to the tomb with their spices, Right? Neither of them thought this was how the day was going to go. And man, for anyone who's ever lost a loved one before, I think think you can easily understand what an overwhelmingly joyful moment this is for them. To see their their friend and their Lord once again, whose, whose death all the disciples, all of Jesus' disciples, they were still trying to come to grips with, now seeing Jesus here in front of them, I mean, Matthew simply tells us that they clasped Jesus' feet and worshiped him. I love how in John's gospel, uh, he goes on to add that at some point, Jesus actually had to to tell them to let go of him. (laughs) They had to be like, okay, guys, I'm excited to see you too. Got got other people to see as well. And yet I think, you know, there's a sense, there must have been a sense in both of them that just like having lost Jesus so painfully, they're like, I never want to let go of you again. But Jesus' resurrection was also historically significant as well. For as the angel reminds them, there in verse 6, it says, Jesus had risen just as he said, just as he had told you, right? This is referring to how all through his earthly ministry, Jesus had told his disciples specifically, not only that he was going to die, but that he was going to be raised again on the third day, what he sometimes referred to in his public teaching ministry as the sign of Jonah. Now, yes, what's clear from the gospel accounts is that Jesus' followers would often miss the uh, importance, the meaning of his teaching, that that wasn't strange. But given how specific, like how completely unambiguous Jesus had been in his teaching about his death and resurrection, uh, it, it it seems like everyone must have just thought he was speaking metaphorically. Jesus was, he's giving us one of these parables again. I wonder what that's going to look like, but nobody expected that this would actually happen, as obviously the one who had demonstrated so clearly his power over death, he couldn't die himself, right? What I find interesting is that when Jesus' first prediction that they all found impossible to take place took place, and he did actually die, no one thought to be like, maybe that other thing that he said, which sounded impossible, could have happened as well. Uh, You don't see anybody flipping through their sermon notes, trying to be like, oh, how many days did he say he was going to rise again? Nobody's doing that. They're all just like, he's just dead. Oh, well. But what makes the historical significance of Jesus' resurrection truly joyful as well is that now what it is, it's like this divine stamp of authenticity, this stamp of authority on everything Jesus had said and taught in his ministry. And no question, right, Jesus had said and taught some amazing Unbelievable stuff in his earthly ministry, up to and including saying that he was God in human flesh. So, And, and it's, it's stuff that he had said, which, while amazing and inspiring, had fallen pretty flat right? when Jesus had died. And they'd put him in a borrowed grave. it kind of been like, hmm, well, that sounded great, but I guess not. But now, look at this. Seeing Jesus alive again seeing that the same power that he demonstrated over death in others was actually alive in him as well, meant that all of the things Jesus had claimed, up to and including being the Son of God, were true. A revelation absolutely worthy of joy, not only because it revealed that Jesus truly was who he said he was, but it revealed that what Jesus had said he'd come to do, he'd actually done, namely to defeat sin and death. To, to crush the head of the serpent, to, to open that way through the barrier to God that had separated all humanity from the moment we first lost that access back in the Garden of Eden. This was the sign that he had done that. I love N.T. Wright's summary of the true joy of this moment when he notes this. The point, of course, he says, is that what's happening is the action of God himself. The God who remained apparently silent on Good Friday is now having the last word answering both the unspoken questions of Jesus' followers and the spoken questions of Jesus himself on the cross. Which, no, I don't think, that's not for a moment to suggest that the women here coming to the tomb and seeing all this, they understood all the theological implications of that in this moment. I I don't, and I think that's why they were so joyful? I don't think so. I think it's literally just the reason we said they saw Jesus again. That's why they were joyful. And the truth is, actually, none of Jesus' followers actually really understood the fullness of what Jesus' resurrection meant until years later. And that's actually what the rest of the New Testament includes for us. Kind of all their discoveries of everything that Jesus' resurrection meant and and all the implications of what it means for us and life in him means now. That's what they wrote about as they learned and discovered it. But what's interesting to me now today is that for all the joy this moment still contained for these women... And however appropriate it was then, what continues to surprise me is how little joy the news of Je- Jesus' resurrection inspires in us still today. Even people who who would say, "Yeah, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe this." You talk about the resurrection, and people are like, "Yep, that's right." And and I get that. Like, okay, n- none of us none of us saw Jesus die. None of us like had. Jesus resurrected, Jesus physically appearing to us. If you have seen that, I'd love to talk with you after the service. <laughs> None of us have that experience. I get that, right? So, so I'm a fully aware that the experience described for us here in this passage is unique to these people and that our experience is going to look different. I, I get that. But if what I said earlier is true, if the absence of feeling joy in response to news that is truly joyful means that something may be broken in us, I think it's worth asking the question at least. Like like if you know that this is you right now, I I think about the resurrection of Jesus and I know it doesn't really actually inspire joy at all in me, I think it's worth at least asking the question of why not? How come? Like rather than just ignoring the light on the dashboard, ignoring or just kind of maybe placing this on that to-do list of stuff that we never end up getting to, to just explore, to press in, and really ask the question of why we don't feel joyful. Why? Why is it? Is it just like overfamiliarity with the message? We just heard it so much that it doesn't inspire feelings of joy anymore. Maybe. Is is the lack of joy actually exposing maybe a lack of belief? It's exposing that maybe we actually doubt that any of this really happened. It's possible. Or is the presence of some maybe habitual sin, some devastating sadness in our lives right now, blocking out the light of joy that might otherwise be there? Any of those things are are possible. Just to ask the question, if I'm not feeling joy at this news, which is truly joyful, why not? To Press into that. The point is... whatever brokenness is blocking out your response of joy to the news of Jesus' resurrection, particularly given the fact, like, think about it, we actually have even more reason for joy than the first disciples did because we understand, actually, all the implications of what his resurrection means. We have, in some sense, reason for more joy than they did. But if you know that's where you're at, whatever the brokenness is that's blocking out the light of joy... May our humble prayer today begin maybe with the words of Henry Van Dyke's classic poem set to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. May that be our prayer today. Okay, so that's the importance of joy. And, and why the absence of it signals something that we need to press into and look at. I want to look at the last thing together: is the importance of fear. The importance of fear. We need to look at this again because of how striking Matthew's description of these women's reaction to the news of Jesus' resurrection. That, along with joy, which again we said is the expected, easily understood response, Matthew says they also responded with free, with fear, afraid and filled with joy right that's the unexpected that's the not so easily understood response so all i want to do for these last few minutes is just explain why i think their response of fear is actually entirely appropriate as well as along with exploring why we need to in some sense respond with fear to the new the news of jesus resurrection as well and as it relates to these first recipients of the news of jesus resurrection along with this physical experience of seeing Jesus, which kind of confirmed that this news actually was true, I think the first and maybe most obvious reason that they experienced fear is because at what they're being told is that someone that they'd just seen brutally murdered two days ago, had, had, and they'd seen him buried in a tomb. Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that these two women were actually there when Jesus is being buried, that he isn't dead anymore, and he's planning to meet them in Galilee. Which, I mean, yes, I, I get. This is like millennia before anything like horror movies or zombie apocalypse stories. Like, I don't think, they're not, they're not thinking anything like that. But, but it's just, it's, it's so, it's joyful, but it's extremely out of the ordinary kind of news to be told. This would be totally disorienting and unsettling news to hear. And I know sometimes people want to explain away the resurrection entirely, saying that, you know what, this is just the superstition of first century people. They, they believed stuff like that. Right, uh, fairies, leprechauns, resurrections that's stuff that people believed back then. Uh, I've talked about this numerous times in the fact that the, the reality is that historically speaking, no, they didn't. Uh, they, they really didn't. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, Jews believed in a, a general resurrection of all God's people at the end of time, but they had nothing in their culture or theological understanding that prepared them for an individual person rising from the dead. They, they had nothing. That, that would make that plausible to them. And then, you know, Greeks and Romans, steeped in the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, they, they saw the, the, the spirit, the inner person, that's your true self, that's your, your pure self, and the body, just a disposable, expendable extra. They, they wouldn't have had any concept of wanting a bodily resurrection. So, so neither of them thought that this was a real thing, that this is something that just happened all the time. They, they didn't believe in resurrection, and it was so far outside their expectation. So I think that's the first reason this is fearful news as well. It's joyful. It's also fearful. But beyond that, and, and actually I think this is the greatest reason for their the response of fear to this news, is because of what the angel tells them to do following the announcement. If you look at verse 6, he invites them, first of all, to enter the tomb to see that it's indeed empty. And I love what a number of the commentators pointed out about this seemingly small detail. They're saying the removal of the stone covering Jesus' tomb wasn't so that Jesus could get out, but so that his disciples could look in. I love that that's kind of like this invitation to scientific inquiry, actually. He doesn't just stand outside the tomb saying, don't worry, guys, he's risen. Just trust me. Go tell everybody he's risen. He's like, no, come and see. Look. Look where they laid him. But then... Look at verse 7. He says this to them. Then go quickly. Tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Which, I mean, that sounds like a normal thing to ask someone to do with such big news. Like, go tell everybody that he's, he's alive. It sounds normal until you realize that the people the angel is talking to here are women. And he's talking to women, not in the 21st century, but in the 1st century. When women at that time are seen primarily, like their status is maybe slightly above slaves, but not much. And particularly when it comes to men, f- far beneath. Okay, they, they have no voting rights. They have no access to education or, or teaching. Uh, in, in even in, in court, their testimony alone is not considered valid. They, they, it's, it's not received, which when you think about it, was well, maybe not the smartest idea on the angels' part, uh, at least to give the women this job in particular. Like, why would he do that? I mean, just follow the logic of this for a second. We've already established how unexpected an individual resurrection at this time and culture is to begin with. It's already going to be a hard sell for anybody, male or female, to go back to a group of scared, mourning individuals, like they're they're still like rocked by this death of Jesus. Like they haven't even had the funeral yet, and you want to go into that room and start telling people, uh, "You don't need to no, no need to mourn anymore. Jesus is alive now. Don't worry." How's that going to be received? Not not well. But then, like that alone's already a nearly impossible task. But add the additional fact now of the people entrusted with delivering the message are women. And I think it starts to become painfully clear why they would experience both joy and fear at this news. And if you think about it, even after having met the resurrected Jesus himself on the way back, which, yes, like, amazing, amazing. Wow, that's incredible and and so unexpected, too, and joyful. But yet, look at verse 10. Even Jesus says to them, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. He gives them the same job. I mean, you've got to believe that in this moment, as they're saying this, now J- Jesus is saying this to them as well. The women had to be thinking, wait, wait, so you, you're not coming with us? You, you want us to go back to the disciples without you and tell them you're alive now and that we should all go to Galilee and wait for you there? Am I, am I understanding that right? Like, this is a phone call, right? That's where you just, like, hold the phone away, and you're like... <laughs> I mean, it's just, they, they must have been looking at him just like, hmm, perfect. Sounds good, Jesus. Unlike, like, no, this is, this is terrifying for them. So again, we, we lose something of the impact of this with the cultural and historical distance, but I think it's clear why fear would also be their response to the news. It's an impossible errand That although Matthew doesn't include it, uh, we read in Luke's gospel is received exactly as they probably imagined it would be. Luke tells us flatly, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They must have just been like, I I knew that that's what they were going to do. Who could believe this? And yet for all the fear it caused, all the panic it caused in them, I love two things about this part of the story. First of all, I love that Jesus chose women to be the first heralds of his resurrection anyways. You think, you think Jesus was unaware of the cultural significance? I love that he chose them anyways. Jesus was constantly elevating the status of women in a culture and a time where they were seen as valuable only for what they could provide. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here as well. Choosing them instead of any of his male disciples to be the first heralds of the Easter story. So I love that he chose women anyways. I also love that they went anyways. Honestly, the faith of these women throughout the Gospels, it's really legendary, but particularly at the end of his life, you see it explicitly. They're the ones standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying, being present with him in his agony. They're the ones there when Jesus is being buried. Now here they are again, coming to the tomb to honor Jesus' body after resting on the Sabbath, despite both the risk to themselves and as Mark's gospel tells us, having no idea how they were going to move the stone in order to be able to do that, they just, they just, they just go. So I don't know, like, although it's amazing, maybe we shouldn't be surprised uh, that, that given the virtually impossible task to perform by the angel and then Jesus, culturally speaking anyway, these women are still like, okay, let's, let's go. All right. Uh, like, they, that even though they're absolutely, yeah, they are afraid, they're just like, hey! If Jesus has given us this job to do, He's telling us not that we don't need to be afraid. Even though I'm, I still feel afraid, I trust that He's going to enable me to do this. And so they, say, and so they just go. I love that. And here's what's amazing to see: as a result of Jesus choosing women to do this job and their willingness to go, despite the initial rejection of Jesus' other followers at that time, what even secular historians note today is that the fact that all four gospel accounts list women as the first heralds of the news that Jesus had risen from the dead is some of the most convincing evidence, historically speaking, that this is what actually happened. They say that because if the New Testament authors were writing mythology if they were just like making up a story to kind of sound like, hey, Jesus rose, they never would have included a detail like this because it would have been seen to weaken the credibility of the story. So the fact that the women were sent and they went is one of the things today that helps historians to say, like, this actually probably is really what happened. But what's important to remember when it comes to you and to me today, male or female, is that I think we share some of the exact same fear that these women had when it comes to speaking about Jesus' resurrection ourselves. Perhaps not because we're not culturally permitted to do so, although that's increasingly becoming the case as well, but for the same reason that they feared to proclaim Jesus' resurrection as well. Namely, just the seeming impossibility of it. The seeming implausibility of such a thing to thinking people in any generation. Who who would believe this? Many followers of Jesus today, We we, we have no problem, even in a mixed-faith setting, we're talking about Jesus' birth. We're about to start celebrating that in a few weeks' time, Uh, uh, talking about his teachings, even referencing Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross. But where almost all of us at least pause is at the resurrection. Not even because we don't believe it, but just simply because of how crazy we know it sounds. And it does. And honestly, similar to the one who experiences no joy in response to Jesus' resurrection, if you don't experience at least some fear, some apprehension, when it comes to the genuinely fearful task of talking to friends or family or neighbors about Jesus' resurrection, there may be something broken in you as well. Either because you, you've got a, a naive understanding of people and you just think, well, oh, wow, just telling them. Or you've just forgotten how foolish this all sounded to you as well before the Spirit opened your eyes to understand the truth of it. We've just forgotten, like, man, this sounded crazy to me too. Truth is, I think we actually need to have some sense of fear to some degree in our witness for Jesus. We should. Why? Well, in one sense, I think because it keeps us humble. It keeps us in a learning posture. And I think it keeps us thinking about how to communicate the truths of our faith in a way that's thoughtful, in a way that's truly compelling, and in a way that's considerate of where people are in their journey towards faith in Jesus as opposed to where we think they should be. Now, sure, I suppose someone could say that they experience no fear in response to the resurrection at all simply because they never talk about it with anyone. Um, at least not, I don't talk about it with anyone who doesn't, I know doesn't share that same conviction about the resurrection. and they and they genuinely do that.' They're, they're saying because they have a belief that they're trying to be respectful of others. I don't want to impose my religious beliefs on other people. And while, yeah, listen, 100%, I'd agree. We, we should never seek to be offensive to people. We shouldn't seek to impose, our religious beliefs on them while i believe that's true i challenge the conclusion that that means we're not still called to be witnesses for jesus in every place the spirit provides opportunity that we're not still to be those who share the hope of jesus life and death and resurrection in our own lives again in ways that are thoughtful compelling and, and considerate for what that conclusion fails to consider is actually what we're going to look at in two weeks time when we conclude this series through Matthew's gospel that what the rest of Jesus followers when when they all show up in Galilee like Jesus called them to do and they and he meets them on this mountain where he will ascend to the father Jesus parting words to them are not Ta-da, told you guys I was coming back so listen like remember this day now going forward I prove to you I really am God, all right? That's not what he says. He says, you now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? What's classically referred to as the Great Commission. And he Wright, again, summarizes this reality so well when he writes, the crucial thing to remember is that Jesus' resurrection is not about proving some point or offering people a new spiritual experience. It's about God's purpose that must now be fulfilled. They must see Jesus, yes, but that seeing will be a commissioning, a commissioning to a new work, a new life, and a new way of life in which everything he told them before will start to come true. So yes, 100%, it's not about offending people. It's not about imposing on people. The reality is, the truth is, our belief in the resurrection is also to be, it's also our, our commissioning, our commissioning to go and tell. So we're going to go to our time now of silent reflection on everything that the Spirit has revealed in His Word, as well as just a time of listening to the Spirit's voice of how He wants you to respond to this in particular. But as we take this time I'd love you to consider and think about those two responses to Jesus' resurrection, to keep those in mind that we saw in our passage and that we have as well, fear and joy. Some of you, maybe what the Spirit has already been revealing in you is a lack of joy that you know you currently have to Jesus' resurrection, for any of those reasons I mentioned or others. And maybe what the Spirit wants to do today is invite you into a renewed experience of joy, by removing some of those things, blocking out the light of God's joy in your life. Maybe that's it. Or, or for others, maybe it's, the, it's a lack of fear that the Spirit's already been revealing to you, either because of a naive approach to sharing about Jesus or because you're not sharing about him at all, perhaps afraid of how people will perceive you <laughs> if you associate yourself with belief in such fairy tales. Maybe today what the Spirit wants to invite you into is a, is a healthy fear. A healthy fear that leads to greater humility in the way you share or an awareness that one of the main points of Jesus' resurrection was not simply a bare affirmation or appreciation of a fact alone, but a commissioning. A commissioning to sharing the hope of Jesus' resurrection that others may come to share in that same hope as well. So Let's take a few minutes. We'll go to prayer and then We'll come to take the Lord's Supper together.